Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. If you would open your Bibles up to the book of Matthew, please, the 13th chapter. We'll read verses 47 to 52. And I think I'm going to introduce it this time. Um, you know, you always are torn whether or not to give the application at the beginning or the end or both. And it used to be in the old days, I think, that people were more capable of thought than I am. Um, but let me introduce it by saying that in the past few years, it's increasingly clear to us how wicked the church and her leaders are. And I don't know that we've ever had such a terrible couple of weeks as we've had in the last two weeks. Um, and there's a reason, knowing a lot of the leaders, there's a reason why on my blog I'm always warning you not to have celebrities. And you know that in this church I'm constantly puncturing my own hot air in front of you so that you don't look up to me as a celebrity but rather just as an idiot who preaches to you and tries to admonish you and love you. And I remember before my dad died, he wrote an article talking about what he saw in the future and what he wanted. This was shortly before he died. And he was giving advice to leaders, and one of the things he said is, don't ever cultivate dependence on you. What you want to do is you want to disciple people in such a way that they're independent of you. Now, he didn't really mean independent, that that meant we wouldn't preach, teach, admonish, and stuff. But what he meant was that what we have to do is look to God. He is the faithful one. Your pastors aren't. Your elders aren't. Your older Titus II women aren't. Your father isn't. Your father disciplines you. And the only reason he disciplines you is because God disciplines him. <laughs> and uh, I was just thinking about that this morning and thinking, you know, you, to kids, when we discipline them, we, I, had one, I had a man say to me this last week, well, actually, that's a little bit of a compression, but he's, this young man grew up, and he told his father, he said, I, I thought you and mom were perfect. That's... It's not even true. Your pastors aren't perfect. Your elders aren't perfect. Only God. In fact, let me say it differently. Only God is good. Okay? And so every time your, your parents admonish you and correct you and discipline you, and we do this constantly as, as a church. The elders do this to older men. You just don't see it, you know, but... We get disciplined by each other. My wife disciplined me this morning. I don't know why she was up early in the morning, but she, told, she gave me a piece of her mind. I've been thinking about it ever since. Painful. Um, cultivate faith in God. Don't cultivate faith in anybody that writes, any books that are written, any conferences, any table talk magazines, 
God is good. And we are servants of his. And servants of his all through scripture are just constantly. The apostle Paul says he puts no confidence in the flesh. Why should we? Right? I'll keep messing with this, but I'll get it right eventually. Um, And so I say that the last couple of weeks have been awful. What has been awful? Well, uh, Mark Driscoll continues to come up with plagiarism issues. And I'm not talking about, (laughs) I mean, I've always tell you, my sermons, they're just repackaged Ryle and Calvin and Augustine and, you know, and you all know that. I'm not giving you original insights. You don't want original insights from me, right? You know? But it's another thing when you write a book and ask for money for for writing the book. And when that happens, there's a different standard. And when somebody who's writing publicly is cribbing, you know the term cribbing? It's a euphemism for plagiarizing. When somebody's stealing other men's text, it's awful. It's awful. And then we find out that his church has paid 210000 to a marketing firm in L.A. to get his new book with his wife called Real Marriage onto the New York Times bestseller list. Okay? The church, they used the church's money, 210000 so that this organization would go around the country and would just buy tons of books under different people's names, because you can't buy them all in bulk, right? And all those purchases all, in all the states of the Union, facilitated by 210,000, popped the book to the New York Times bestseller list right away. And when they're, when they're, when they're, in, when they're asked about it by World Magazine, their response is, well, every church does these things, This is how we get the word of God out. And people, that is absolutely worldly. But worldly doesn't even have any negative connotation anymore. You know, it used to be if you said somebody was a worldling, there were a few worse things you could say in the church. And then Bill Gothard has been put on administrative leave. And why? Because of his lust with the young women that worked for him. And I could keep going on. The elders right now are working on a case that is just awful. And you just see the leaders failing all around you. And you ask yourself, is it all fake? If this is the church, and we know what the world is, right? We know what the world is. If this is the church. Now, with that question in our minds, let's go and read the word of God, okay? This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Again, this is Jesus teaching. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach 
And they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out his treasure, out of his treasure, things new and old. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is one of a series of parables concerning the kingdom of heaven. If you have a Bible, you can uh, open to Matthew 13, and you will see that uh, you have the parable of the sower and the seeds, Then you have the parable of the mustard seed. You have the parable of the tares among the wheat. That's where they go out and sow seed and and weeds are growing in among the seed. Then you have the leaven. Then you have the tares explained. Then you have a hidden treasure, the costly pearl, and then the dragnet. And so again and again, we're dealing here with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Now, today, we don't really have any understanding of the word kingdom, um, because we don't have any understanding of the word king. We don't have any understanding of the word Lord, because if there's one thing to be said about America, it's that we are very democratic. I never knew what the word democratic meant until uh, one day when I worked on this estate. I keep telling you about it, on the cliffs overlooking the Atlantic Ocean, on a private road of a private island, I think the only private island in the country where the post office goes out and delivers to the homes, private land. And uh, the man and the woman I worked for were New England royalty. Uh, One of the jobs I did was to clean the uh, china, a whole wall of china in the dining room that was given by George Washington to, I believe it was Alexander Hamilton, but I might be wrong about that, but it was to one of the lady of the house's ancestors. She had all this china that that, uh, George Washington had given to one of her ancestors. And... There were five alarm systems. There were panic buttons behind curtains. There were uh, ultraviolet rays from, you know, there were magnetic strips. There were heat detectors, smoke detectors, you know. One of the funniest things that ever happened there was one day I set off the burglar alarm. So the police came out onto the island and it wasn't an Iowa, it was a peninsula, but they came up to the front door, and the front door is just this huge piece of glass with huge pieces of glass on either side, and I had set the alarm off coming in the back door, and so when the police rang the doorbell, there's police officers outside the door. Well, of course, if you have glass on the front door, what do you have? You have a deadbolt 
that only works with a key inside and outside. Well, the key was sitting in the huge stone pillar behind the police. So I'm there at the door. I can't open the door to them, you know. And I'm telling them, turn around, go over, get the, yeah, reach up there, you know. I have to tell the, the police to go get the key and come and unlock the door so the burglar can talk to them, you know. It was hilarious. One day, the man of the house came home, and I was out working, digging up some dead grass to replant it, and uh, he came out and he started digging with me. And here's the point of the story. When Enoch, this godly, uh, godly 83-year-old Baptist uh, man that was such a dear gift from God to me while I was in seminary, when Enoch either saw Mr. Spalding or I told him of Mr. Spalding doing that with me, you know what he said? He said, yes, he said, Mr. Spalding is what? A very democratic man. And he was saying that in opposition to Mrs. Spalding, who was... uh, imperious uh, of or similar to imperial, all right? She would, she would direct you with her forehead whenever she gave you instructions. Tim, and so in America, we absolutely despise our betters. That's deep in the core of our existence. Nobody's better than me. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. I remember when Prince Charles came to Chicago and the newspapers were just filled with op-eds. We don't have royalty. And then they all went out to Oak Brook to watch the polo match. And so America is democratic. What that really means is America despises authority and refuses to acknowledge that there are stations in life that God has given us and that it is godliness to be content with the stations that God has given us in life. Now, think about this, people. What are stations? Well, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, having a facility mentally as opposed to having a facility with our hands, being a musician or being tuned dead. All through our lives, by birth, we are given stations. We're white, black, brown, yellow. If we're black, I found out last night, we don't get wrinkles, and I was resentful when I found that out. You know, I don't see why white should get wrinkles. Why doesn't D. Wayne get wrinkles, you know? But a black man last night told me that blacks don't crack. I never knew that. It just makes me irritated. And these are stations in life. And of course, the big one is male-female. They're stations. And it's godliness for us to observe our stations. All right? 
Now, why am I going on about this? Well, you cannot begin to understand any of Scripture until you realize that God has given each of us stations and that it is faith to be content and to live in our stations. And when you begin to understand that, then you can begin to understand Jesus' constant reference to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Because the emphasis for us needs to be on kingdom. Because we have no concept of a kingdom. We vote. We choose our president. We choose our governor. And now we choose our, well, we don't choose our parents, but we we tell our parents that they owe us money and we take them to court. There's absolutely no respect for authority in America today. Everybody panders to everybody. You don't know the word pander? There's a reason you don't know it. And so when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like, what we have to wrap our minds around is that the essence of the word kingdom is what? Authority. The authority of heaven, the domain of heaven, the rulership of heaven, the strength of heaven, the control of heaven, the, the, uh, the domain of heaven, okay, is like this. It's like a dragnet. So this is God's reign. This is God's kingdom. This is God's turf. Okay? And here's what it's like. It's like a dragnet cast into the sea. Now, you know how you see pictures of uh, the Holy Land where this guy's standing in, you know, about a foot of water and he takes this tiny little net and he just kind of, that's called a, I don't know if it's pronounced Seine or Seine. Does anybody know the French? Anyhow. He throws it out and it's it's just so delicate and nice, you know. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a net that would have been sometimes miles wide. It would go across a whole bay and it would have corks on the top and they have records of this in the ancient world and weights. And so they would throw it out, pull it across, a couple of boats would spread it and then they'd drop it. And then those boats would pull it in. You've seen this on probably on television on Alaska fishing or something like that. And so when you pull that net in, what happens is everything in its way gets pulled up, right? Absolutely everything. And when it's pulled up, you have what? What what are the words that are used in our text? You have what? Look at verse 48, good and bad. Now, you remember that Jesus told his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And several of them were fishermen. And so this is a constant theme that God has appointed officers of his church that are called variously Shepherds, I am the good shepherd. They're called scribes here. 
At the end, you say, therefore, every scribe who has, they're called elders, but, but they are the ones that God turns into fishers of men. And this is not that uh, women are not fished. <laughs> men is inclusive, and it's not that women are not called to be fishers of men. But you have to understand that here we're dealing with the church. And the church is this net that's being drug through the water, dragged through the water, and it's catching all kinds of creatures in it, right? Just all kinds. When it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good into containers, but the bad they threw away. The word fish is supplied each time. It's not in the original because everybody knew what they were dealing with when they were talking about the net. And so, you know, this is not complicated. If you ever drive to New England, stop in Gloucester, go down to the waterfront. It stinks. It's filthy. And you'll have a picture of the life of a fisherman. It's nothing glamorous at all. And everybody knew about this fishing. And so they understood what Jesus was saying, that when that huge net is pulled in, you've got... You know, just all kinds of creatures that you would never want to eat. Never. And then you've got fish that you really don't want. One time I went out fishing to uh, George's Bank on an overnight, you know, you slept in a bunk overnight with 30 or 40 other people and then got up in the morning and fished. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a good day. But then on the way back, all of a sudden we hit a school of Pollock. Now, you know what Pollock is? The most important thing for you to know about Pollock is it's not cod. <laughs> Pollock is what you get when you go to the store and, and buy frozen fish from Van Campens or whoever it is, and you look on it, it just says, it doesn't name the fish. But if you look carefully, it'll be Pollock. Has a greasy taste. And all of a sudden we hit this pool of Pollock. And you had two hooks, one about three feet apart on your line. As fast as you could throw your line in the water, you would hook two Pollock. You'd bring them in, put them in a burlap bag. As fast as you could do it, you were filling burlap bags. But nobody was excited. And the reason was, who wants Pollock? You know, it's... It's okay, but it's not great. And so probably the Pollock would be thrown out. You know, there's, but if it was tuna, if it was cod, halibut, grouper, perch, yeah. Right? And this is the church. The church has shellfish and, and sharks and just all kinds of nasty fish in her. And also good. The bad, the good. Inside the church. And Jesus says, verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth. And we see this theme in the book of Revelation. We see it all over the place that the angels are the ones that God uses to judge, to separate the sheep from the goats. 
And Jesus said, so it will be that at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. You know how I'm constantly... <laughs> it may be right for the Methodists to switch pastors every three years. <laughs> because you learn what I want you to learn, but what I'm blind to, well, anyhow, you got other pastors for that. But you know how I constantly emphasize to you the fact that our age hates distinctions. We hate distinctions. Okay? And if you think about the distinction between black and white, male and female, musical, unmusical, remember all the estates, all the things that I mentioned at the beginning, those are all distinctions that God gives us in the womb. That they're a part of our birth. We hate them. And so we seek to obliterate them. Do you understand that? But it's so important that you not think that you can obliterate God's distinctions. And the reason is that at the day of judgment, there is no escaping God's distinction. There's no escaping. And so we just work like dogs all through our lives to hide and to obliterate the distinctions that God has given us. This is just one of our most zealous tasks that we perform. And yet Jesus constantly teaches us the distinction is coming. The judgment, the separation, it's coming. And if you look at your life, if you're a fisherman, you know it's coming because you do it every day. You throw out the bad and you keep the good. Think about your garbage disposal. Okay? There's just distinctions everywhere, but we're so opposed to them. America thinks that every distinction God has made, we can obliterate. That's the real ethos of America. Okay? And so Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. And then what? Verse 50. And will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, it's very scandalous for Jesus to tell this parable. And why? Well, because this parable makes it very clear that in the church are people who will be in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We all see that. If you don't believe it, go earlier in the chapter to the parable of the wheat and tares. It's just as clear there. And so if you think about the preaching of God's word, and you think, how many times do we preach in such a way that it calls men and women to examine themselves to see if they be in the faith? And so you think about in the church, I remember a few years ago we lost a man from this church. He went to the Lutheran church because he said he wanted to go to a church where the sacraments, quote, do something. I want to be in it quote, in a church where the sacraments actually do something, unquote. And what we're dealing with there is 
all Israel is Israel. Do you understand? Remember how Paul says in Romans, the Apostle Paul, all Israel, what? Is not Israel. You remember that? Let me, let me, uh, let me read it to you. Romans 9, 6, and 7. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. And so you always have this scandal of the church containing both true Israel and false Israel. Always. This is the point of this parable. This is the point of the parable of the wheat and tares. Jesus is teaching us that the net, I will make you fishers of men. The net is, the gospel as it's preached, it's going to gather both the good and the bad. And Jesus thinks it's helpful for us to know this. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with the Jews. The Jews are absolutely convinced that since they're descendants of Abraham, they're saved. The Apostle Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. Let me read to you something that I just found utterly fascinating. Listen to this. You know how sometimes you, you don't read footnotes, right? Most of you probably refuse to read books with footnotes, <laughs> you know. But if you do read books with footnotes, you know how you just decide, I'm not going to look at the footnote. For heaven's sakes, it's hard enough to get through the text, right? Well, I followed a footnote, and then I followed a footnote in a footnote. And this is what I came up with. So R.C. Trench, a great Bible scholar, and he's writing on this parable, and he says, the Lord did not contemplate his visible church as a communion in which there should be no intermixture of evil. The Lord didn't even think of the church being a place where evil and good are not mixed up together. All right? But as there was a ham, remember the son of Noah, ham, as there was a ham in the ark and a Judas among the twelve, so there should be a Babylon even within the bosom of the spiritual Israel. Now listen, people. Why would he say a bosom? Remember Jerusalem from above, she is our what? Come on. Our mother. So there should be a Babylon even within the bosom of the spiritual Israel. The church is the bride of Christ. The church has a bosom. And in that bosom is Babylon. He says, Esau shall contend with Jacob even in the church's womb. Think about that. Esau 
contends with Jacob, even in the church's womb. This fact does not justify self-willed departure from the fellowship of the church and impatient leaping over or breaking through the nets, as it is often called, but the Lord's separation is patiently to be waited for. Isn't that beautiful? And so then I followed a footnote. And here's the footnote. It's to what we call Psalm 127, but in his numbering, Augustine had it Psalm 126. There are different numbering systems for the Psalms. And you know that in Psalm 127, what does it say? It says, the fruit of the womb is his reward. And so Augustine is, is preaching, expositing this psalm, this statement. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And Augustine says, but to whose womb is the psalm referring? And then he says, that of the church. That of the church. Rebecca was another type. You know what a type is? A type is something that points forward to something. And the thing it points forward to is the antitype. Okay? So Rebecca was another type of the church when twins struggled within her, like two contending peoples. One mother held together within her body two brothers already at variance even before their birth. They battered their mother's belly with their antenatal wrangling. She moaned at the violence she was enduring, but when the time came to bring them forth, she marked the difference between the twins who had made her pregnancy so difficult. The same is true today, brothers and sisters, as long as the church's lot is to moan with pain, as long as she is in labor with her children, for within her are both good and bad people. Can feminism give you such dignity to women? It just can't. You just think about how, until feminists came along, you'd talk about bosoms and wombs and being pregnant and nursing and all these things. And this was how we learned what the church is. You want to see tender language about femininity, go into Calvin's Institutes and read on the church. It's unbelievable. And so here we are, the church. And Jesus knows we're going to be scandalized by the bad and the good being mixed up together. And so he teaches this to prepare us for the fact that our elders and our pastors and our celebrities and the books and the authors and the radio programs and Rome, you talk about unfaithful, Rome. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like, and it gathers up everything in its path, and then the angels come, and they separate it. Now, we shouldn't make the application that it's not the job of men 
to sort because he says at the end of the age, the angels will. That doesn't mean that there's no sorting going on right now, right? We know from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians that he said, expel the evil man from among you. And so, you know, I'll just tell you, our elders, I I can't tell you how weary we are right now. (laughs) You know, right? Um, We have to do work of expelling and of discipline. But we have no illusions that we're going to be able to have Christ return and and just present him. (laughs) First of all, ourselves pristine. And second, the church pristine? No. We just try to stay ahead of the tidal wave. And that's how you live your Christian life. You see behind you this tidal wave of Satan's enticements and bangles and blandishments and seductions and the pride of life, you know, and it's always looking like it's about, you know, I grew up body surfing on the East Coast and then I did it on the West Coast. (laughs) One of these is not like the other. You jump to catch a wave on the West Coast, and what it does is it picks you up high and then slams you headfirst into the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) It's like, whoa! And that's what it feels like with Satan. It feels like we're such a weak little body, and there's so much evil in ourselves and in our leaders. and, And Jesus says, the holy angels, they'll get it right. But that doesn't mean that we don't purify ourselves. Now, that's where I want to end. What is the application of this? Is it fatalism? It can't be fatalism, right? It can't be go to a church where the sacraments do something. Jesus doesn't say, well, you better be in the one true church of Rome or the sacraments won't do anything. I mean, think of the absurdity. You listen to EWTN because a lot of it is wonderful. But I mean, they're so blind to our Lord. It's just constantly teaching the sacraments and that you're saved with the sacraments. It oozes out of them at every level on that, on that radio station. The sacraments mark you physically. And if the sacraments marking you physically was what you should depend upon for salvation, then somewhere Jesus or the Apostle Paul or somebody would have said, all Israel is Israel. And certainly in the womb of God's covenant daughter, Rachel, there would have been both saved. They're both children of the promise. They're both covenant children. The fact that your children are born to you doesn't make them Christians. The fact that you adopt them doesn't make them Christians. The fact that they're marked with the sacrament doesn't make them Christians. What makes them Christians? True living faith. That's it. And what is true living faith? True living faith is faith that produces fruit. And so you know, Calvin, I'm, I'm, I'm sparing you reading Calvin to you. 
You know what Calvin says here? He says, this is to teach us to flee from evil and to do good. And you go, well, how's that an application of this? Well, it's an application because if both good and bad are in the church, then you must examine yourself and see if you are in the faith. And don't talk to me about the sacrament. Show me fruit. Show God fruit. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he casts into the fire, he says in John 15. And so you must bear fruit because fruit is the fruit of true faith. And you say, well, if I don't have true faith, how can I bear fruit? And I say, you know, this is a mystery. (laughs) But give yourself to obeying God, to obeying your parents, to being content with with the, uh, the, what did I call them, the stations in life that you've been given. And don't be scandalized. Don't think you're superior to the church, that you won't, belong to a church until you find one that's worthy of you. That's awful. Imagine choosing to go your entire life without the bosom of the church, without the womb of the church, without the instruction and the discipline and the feeding and the cleaning of the church. Imagine a child looking at his mother and saying, you know, you're ugly. (laughs) And I think I'll go outside and wait for a pretty mother. Okay, I'm done. Love the church and purify yourself and live by faith. Okay? All right, let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the church. We thank you for the bride of Christ. We thank you that she's glorious and we thank you that The mixture of good and bad has not escaped your attention. And Father, we pray that in contradiction to this parable, that every one of us might be good. Produce fruit in us, Father, by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.